Good morning. Would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10? For those that are visiting or new, we are engaged in a series going through this book that Solomon wrote so many years ago. And it's a book about life, isn't it? Solomon says, I'm going to pursue happiness, purpose, and meaning. But the key to the book is where he says, we're going to do life under the sun, which means we're going to set God aside. We're going to take him out of the picture. We're going to pretend that he's not there and not engage with him and see where life goes. His conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity means meaningless, empty, and he describes this event as chasing the wind. So in the series that we're in this morning, he's going to talk about leadership. And in the challenge about dare to lead, Solomon is going to show us what a leader is not. Sometimes the best way to find out what we should do is to make a list of things that we shouldn't do. Amen? There's an ad taken out in the London newspaper. Year was 1900. Here's what it read. Med wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Would you answer an ad like that? For those historians know that was Ernest Shackleton who was making a venture to the South Pole. And he was overwhelmed with the response of men that were challenged by that. He dared to lead. And his lack of success had nothing to do with the amount of volunteers that responded. But Shackleton, as a leader, called people to a cause that was beyond their normal existence and experience. And I think about our leader, Jesus. He calls us. He calls us for his Father's glory. He calls us to a cause beyond our human capabilities. He calls us with diverse unity. We have passions, we have talents, we have gifts. Passions are those things that God instills within us that burn inside our hearts, that sometimes go dim because we're off pursuing idols in our culture that take away that flame. Talents are things that we're born with. Natural abilities, we often call them. And gifts are spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. A way to describe that is in my own life where When I was called to preach, I had no natural talent for public speaking. For anybody that knew me, I was a high introvert. I sat in the back of class, and I took zeros in English class instead of give speeches. Just wasn't going to go there. I didn't like being in front of people. I should still tell you, I still don't like being in front of people. (laughs) But when God called me, he allowed me to have a spiritual gift to share scripture. His cause, not what I want. It's what he desires. And when we accept that calling by faith, what we discover is that he aligns our emotions and desires with his. Matthew chapter 20, just listen to the scripture. The whole idea of leadership is kind of an upside down thing in God's kingdom. 
Here's what Jesus told his disciples just after they were fighting over who was going to be greatest. Who's going to get to sit on the right and who's going to get to sit on the left. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we see that in his own life where his mission was to come and die for you and I. And yet we see him struggling in the garden where he is praying to Heavenly Father saying, if there is another way to do this, But God aligned his emotions in his life because he wanted to reflect God's design and cause. So think about the church for a moment. What do we call people to? I mean, in our culture, in American culture, what is it that we as a church are calling people to? You hear me say this often because it's in our mission statement that our desire at GBC is to be a church that dreams and hungers for God to restore all lives lost. Now, there's a lot of implications in that. But it asks us the question, what are we dreaming about? What are we getting hungry for? Are we allowing God's passions to instill in us that we move out into a venture that we know if God doesn't intervene, we cannot achieve it on a human level. Kenny understands. (laughs) Here's what we've grown accustomed to in the church in America. We've grown accustomed to paying people to risk everything. We call them missionaries. And in some sense, we've created this sense of entitlement inside our churches where it becomes about the programs and about the Sunday morning hour. And we sit there and say things like this, well, I deserve and I want and I like, and what do you have for me? So I will stay. Convince me there's enough stuff here for me to stay. And when I think about the reality of what we share this morning, communion, and how we began a song about singing, how great is our God. I mean, Christ is enough. Amen? And what else do we need in terms of filling our appetites except we're to hunger and thirst after his righteousness? I was reflecting this past week, and in some ways I've sensed that we followed Solomon's pursuit. Life without God, church without God. Now, again, we mention it, we sing it, we open our scriptures, we read books, we hold Bible studies. But listen to our conversations. Our conversations have more to do with stuff and programs and comfort and preferences than they do about the mission and the cause. In many ways, the church has developed its own sense of entitlement. I give, therefore I should get. Max Dupree wrote a book called Leadership is an Art. And here's one of his opening lines. The first responsibility of a leader is to find reality. And again, we have to ask the question, whose reality? I mean, Solomon was a leader among leaders. He was the wisest, according to Scripture, save Jesus Christ. And today we have this never-ending parade of leadership stuff, of management stuff, 
We are being undated with this kind of information. But here's our first lesson we learned out of Solomon. That smart leaders are capable of doing dumb things. (laughs) Smart leaders are capable of doing dumb things. Solomon evidently developed his own sense of entitlement and everything we've been going through. He pursued life because he had the power, he had the money, he had the time, he had the political savvy because he could create laws that would allow him to do whatever. And yet here's what scripture records in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sodomite, and Hittite women. For the nations concerning which the Lord said, there's a command here, to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For Solomon, when was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was his, the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the, Adam, the abomination of the Amorites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's a stark phrase for someone who was supposed to be the wisest man in the world. And did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Now, the scripture goes on to talk about what had happened was that for all his wives, he built temples for their gods. And so he entered into what we now call a multicultural religious experience. And so he would worship all these other gods in addition to Yahweh, Jehovah, one God, who said, you shall only worship me. And there's consequences. Last week I mentioned Manasseh. We're figuring out why evil people get away with things. And Manasseh was the king at 12 years old who followed Solomon. And he was one of the most evil kings. But it was a result of the idols that Solomon set up. It allowed a culture to put into kingship this kind of person. And Israel paid the price for 55 years. But again, note, when I was reading that scripture, note that God tells us that it was a heart issue, that he turned away his heart after our gods, that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. And so here's what Solomon at the end of his life is saying. Here's what I've learned. And we've been looking at a lot of different things that he's learned, but it goes back to the question, are we willing to hear Are we willing to listen? And if you do not take God seriously, he tells us, if you play religion, if you pursue your desires, if you look for power and recognition, if you invest in what you call higher learning, if life is one big party, he says, it doesn't matter who you are, it will leave you empty with no purpose. And at the end of his life, he tells us what a leader is not. Now, he's going to tell us what a leader is later, but this morning in our passage, he's going to tell us what a leader is not. Now, when you read this passage, this section is similar to Proverbs. And think of it this way. 
You're sitting down having a conversation with Solomon at the end of his life. And what seems to be a collection of random insights, it's just really a conversation. And when you look at the insights and you pull them together, you get this mosaic. You get a collection that paints a particular picture. So let's pick up the scripture in verse 12 of chapter 10. And here's the first thing he says that a leader is not. A bad leader has a tendency to say too much. In verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now there's even religious versions of this. Jesus says in Matthew, be careful that you just don't pray with a lot of words. Just don't use random words and pray and pray and pray. Now, think of it this way. Have you ever got into a room where two people who love to talk compete for the conversation? (laughs) Ever been there and you kind of go back and forth and back and forth? My wife and I had an experience with a group of, well, they were brothers and sisters. There was five of them. And they never married. And they were gracious, wonderful, giving people. And when they invite you to their house... All five of them hold a conversation with you simultaneously. (laughs) And you're kind of like, okay, I'll tune in here for a little bit. I'll tune in there. The point's this. He says a bad leader is too busy talking. They cannot hear anyone else. But a wise person is careful and intentional with their words. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 13. That a bad leader, their words are reckless and careless. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Not only do they say too much, they use words that are just inappropriate. Now think about our culture today. Think about social media. Think about everything that you hear going on around you. We are very careless with our words. And this has become the norm. Our social media is so self-centered We change definitions to suit us. We throw accusations just based on our perceptions. We tweet, we Twitter, we blog. Media itself is extremely careless. In the last week, three major networks had to apologize for what they said the day before because it wasn't true. There is little or no accountability. I remember one church that I was working for in a consulting way had a staff person the church had to let go and they sat down and he was one of these and we'll get into a little later he just never did the job that he was hired to do at the end of the day it's kind of like what did you do and so they, they had to let him go for a lot of different reasons well after his let go he blogged and he blasted the church Falsely making accusations against the leadership of that church and what had happened. And in that church, people took sides. Some said, well, how could the leadership do this? And others said, well, you know, maybe there's another side to the story. And you hear me say all the time, there's at least 50 sides to any story. It wasn't until five years later that he confessed in another blog what he did, saying that he had falsely accused this church And he was a whole lot of reasons where he wasn't where he should have been with the Lord. And he blamed them. But the damage was done. So a bad leader uses words that are reckless and careless. 
and they have a tendency to say way too much. Now, in verse 14, Solomon repeats himself. He said, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. Ever sat there with someone saying, okay, when are they going to stop? That's what this means. And who can tell him what will be after him? Now, have you picked up so far that Solomon is telling us that if you want to be a good leader, you have to watch your words. You have to learn to be intentional. You have to learn to be careful. You have to learn to be precise. And that involves us as well when we listen to words. Rather than impose our narrative upon other people, we have to sit and listen and understand where they're speaking from. But this is a major issue in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6 Verses 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Listen to these. Holy eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue, there's words. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, there's words again. And one who sows discord among brothers. And again, this is a person who uses their words to divide people against other people. And they want to get tribal. And they want people to join their version of life. So three out of the seven have to do with how we speak. In Proverbs 18 verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, just a side note here. I don't know. If we, we read this verse a lot in 821. Do you ever know what verse follows this one? Now, I don't know if Solomon's trying to say something. After all, he did marry, what, a thousand women? Just after he says death and life are in the power of the tongue, he says this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I thought I'd get more amens from some men there, but they're just not going to say anything. Look at verse 15. Here's another quality of a bad leader. They have misdirected energy. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now, think about that imagery. Here's a guy that's supposed to be at a place, but he never finds his way. And Solomon's describing a person here who's unproductive, who works a lot and never gets anything done. They appear to be so busy. But at the end of the day, they said, what did you do? Well, I'm just busy. I'm just busy all the time. But what did you do? These people, you try to schedule an appointment with, and they say, well, I'm, I'm busy at least three months out. And yet, what are they doing? So they have misdirected energy. Their passions, their time, their talents isn't being directed towards a cause and a path towards that call. They're not strategic. Rather, they're just kind of out there, and they're just... They're busy. With what? Who knows? Look at the fourth quality of a bad leader. They celebrate too quickly. Verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And again, think of the imagery here. King is a child means they're immature. Their princes feast in the morning. They're celebrating before the day's out. Before the end is known. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility, child to son, they grew up, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. I mean, think of the imagery there. 
People who claim success, well, the jury's out. Now, if you're in the field of athletics, every coach will tell you the same thing. Do not celebrate too soon. And yet every single year you can read a sports story where a team decides to celebrate too soon and it costs them the game. Now, the infamous one for me is, and again, I'm going to show my age, is Cal versus Stanford. I don't know how many of you remember that one, but a few seconds left in the game. The fans thought that the guy was tackled and he was down, but he wasn't. And so they go streaming out onto the field. And this guy runs right through the crowd because nobody can get to him, right into the end zone, and they win the game. I was looking at some stories this past year. Rhode Island wins the victory for teams celebrating too soon. They had a high school girls softball team, state championship. They're one out away. They're up by two. Bases are loaded. All they needed was a force out any plate. Ground ball. They throw to second. They thought they had the girls second. And all the girls go running to center. Gloves are in the air. Balls in the air. The umpire called the person safe. And all three places walked around into home plate. These girls were celebrating, had no clue what was going on, and they lost the game. Rhode Island again. Basketball. State championship game. A few seconds left. The team that was winning by a point intercepts the ball. The guy intercepts it, thought the game was over, throws the ball in the air in celebration. They all pour into the field. Well, guess what? There was still two seconds left. So they had to get them off. The other team got the ball, went in, and scored. See, a bad leader celebrates way too quickly. Here's the fifth. Bad leader has no preventive maintenance. Verse 18, though sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. And what he's saying here is this, that a bad leader is inattentive. They're not intentional. And when you think about a house, they just wait for the roof to collapse, saying, oh, I guess I need a new roof now because it is now on my floor. They don't think ahead. They don't plan ahead. They don't look at what needs to get done so that they can get to the place they want to go. They live in the moment. I remember a couple I knew, they always had a problem with cars. Now, the problem was, they always waited until something broke before they took it in to get fixed. They never checked the oil. They never changed the oil. It's kind of like, what was that? And their cars always broke down, and they were always angry where they bought their cars because they felt like they got cheated. See, a good leader thinks ahead. A good leader lays out a strategy. A bad leader lives day to day. That's the sixth quality of a bad leader then. They save nothing for unexpected expenses. Bread is made for laughter and wine glands life. And money answers everything. Now this could be written today of our culture. Here's what it says. These people live day to day. Their solution to their problems is just give me more money because I ran out too soon. See, a bad leader does that. A good leader says, wait a minute, I got expenses in January, February. Okay, I got a big one coming in March, so I need to set some aside. A bad leader says, oh, you know what? I got enough for today. And tomorrow I'll have enough. They lose the larger pictures. And of course, 
The larger picture about all this isn't just money. It isn't how we live. We got to look at our spirituality. We got to look at our physical life. We got to look at our emotional life. And I hope you're getting the idea that Solomon is saying this. If you set aside God, if you get rid of God in the picture, if you choose to be a leader in life, leaving God out is very reckless. very reckless then the last point he makes is that a bad leader undermines authority even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter what an interesting picture of gossip there (laughs) some little birdie some winged creature we don't know who they are And they're going to repeat what you said. Of course, they're going to embellish what you said. And they'll make you say what you really didn't say. But they will undermine authority. This here, by the way, is satanic in origin. It was Satan who said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to heaven. You know, last week we spoke about fear and respect for God. And Solomon in his own wisdom is saying, listen, if you don't have respect for God, why would you have respect for anyone else in authority? He said, I just found that to be true. You leave God out of the picture. Yes, life is empty, is meaningless. It's, it's all those things. But understand there's far greater consequences. You won't have respect for other people, which means you're not going to have respect for yourself. That's what happens when we're empty. That's what happens when we lose our purpose. And when you have no respect, it reveals what's in your own heart. Now I know in American culture, our level of disrespect has ridden dramatically in terms of how we speak of people in authority. A lesson I learned when I was about 28 years old, moved to Canada, and I was with some people in the church, and I made a joke about Prince Charles. And when I did that, I thought it was funny. I got this stern look. And someone says, we don't do that here. And I says, what do you mean? They said, royalty, we only speak about them with respect, even though we disagree. You've heard me speak about Zimbabwe because I've been there um, a fair bit. President Mugabe, who's, who's one of, he's just an incredibly evil dictator. If you go there, they will not speak evil Mugabe. It's part of the English culture they were taught. That if he's in office, you speak about him with respect. In America, let's be honest, we're careless, we're reckless. We've lost something here. Everyone is open season. And even though we say, well, we have the right to speak truth. We don't do it out of relationship and love. We do it out of our cultural experiences. And it goes back to being a hard issue. Now, when you look at this, and Solomon says, okay, here are seven things that a leader is not. He's really telling us that apart from God, this is the kind of leadership you're going to get. This is what leadership looks like on a good day when you remove the fear of God out of the picture. So if this is what you want, then go for it. 
But let me suggest two things in closing. I think Solomon's telling us this, and let me explain the first one. It's called lead yourself. Now, by leading yourself, he tells us that we got to keep God in the center. That we always have to be a student of God. And we have to be careful what we are learning. And we have to keep growing in Christ. We have to keep serving like that passage I read. So if we're going to lead ourselves, we're going to put ourselves in humility in a position of serving. And we will engage in the cause that God has called us into. And that Christ is the head of the church and we're not. I ran across the blog about two weeks ago. It said, here are three habits that make you dumb. <laughs> it was interesting, so I read them. And here's what the author said. Resent the success of others. Hang on to offenses, failures, and disappointments. And serve yourself at the expense of others. And I said, wow. I said, Solomon is saying the same thing. If it's all about you, I mean, here's what you get. If it's all about who he is, we get to go on an incredible adventure that we ourselves cannot define or achieve. Number two, create an environment where people can flourish with and for Christ. I mean, for me, that means it's relationship-driven. For me, it means we take down our policies and programs that make it difficult for people to grow in Christ. For me, it means that we take a broader picture of, of what God wants to do in and through us. That God is on the move, just not inside our walls, but outside our walls is even more critical. I remember a conversation I had with someone in our last church, and I was there for about two years, and they were resigning from a teaching position and people were really getting on his case about this. See, he owned a used car dealership in Mannheim and he had a passion for helping single parents. Mannheim is, is one of the lower income places and so by capita in Lancaster County they had more single parents than any other town in Lancaster County. So his passion was to help them fix their cars, to build relationships. And so he would do that, you know, out of his own paycheck, wanting that they wanted to have good cars, but he also wanted to introduce them to Christ. I remember sitting down with him, and and I said, wow, I said, what an incredible ministry. He looks at me and says, does this count? I says, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, I have people getting my case because I'm not teaching a Sunday school class on a Sunday morning now because I'm investing in this, and this is taking a lot of time. He goes, does this count? I said, well, absolutely. I said, this is your passion? Look at what God's doing through you. And I said, you're reaching people that Sunday school class will never reach. Not that that's not important. Remember I talk about diverse unity? That was his passion. And he needs to run with it. And people that are passionate about teaching kids, they need to run with that. And that's why the body is described by hands, feet, fingers, toes, legs, arms. It's time to unleash the untapped potential of the church. Amen? I don't know about you, but I have a passion to make a difference. And what that means is I have to let go of my agenda. If I'm going to lead well, it's not my agenda. And I've got to begin to see everyone around us, the people who have called us to bless. That's why every single morning, a friend of mine has taught me that you wake up and say, Lord, who can I bless today? 
And I will guarantee you when you pray that prayer, he will answer that if we have eyes to see it. There are a lot of people that we can choose to bless. For me, it means that we inspire faith in God in all venues of life, just not here in a Sunday morning for one hour. So what is God up to in our midst? What does he want to do? Many of you know that um, I like using ancient rope prayers. Early on in my ministry, I didn't like them because I said, well, who wants a rope prayer? It sounds really kind of stupid. But the power and the words that are part of that are incredible. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that if you engage in the cause of the church and if he calls you out and your passions get inflamed, um, you will be overwhelmed. That's the only word for it. The need is great. And when you let God break your heart for what breaks his heart, you will be overwhelmed. So there's a prayer that I like to use, and we do it in the group that I'm with. It's called Prayer for a Peaceful Spirit. And we're going to close this service by praying this prayer together. So if we can put it on the screen. And in closing, will you honor God by standing? And let's pray this together. And think of the words of this prayer. Let's pray. Please, Lord, slow me down. Ease my pounding heart. Quiet my racing mind. Steady my hurried steps. Amidst the confusion of my days, grant me the calmness of your peace. Help me to know the truly restoring gift of sleep. Teach me the art of taking time off to slow down to see the beauty in your creation. To chat with a friend, to read a few lines from a good book. Remind me each day that this is more to life than increasing its speed. It is living each moment with you and for you. Let me look upwards into the branches of a towering oak, knowing that it grew great and strong because it grew slowly and well. Please, Lord, slow me down. Teach me to be gentle and humble in heart, fearing nothing in this world. As you are my Lord, grant me rest for my soul, now and eternally with you. Amen. God bless. Go in his peace. You're dismissed.